Off we go. March the 29th, 2015, lecture discussion number 192 on the book of Romans. And as we've been saying in the pregame here prior to the lecture starting, all of us have been talking about it. I hope that everyone out there, all you folks on the Internet, everyone here have been watching. And let me reemphasize, watching. We're, we've been spending a great deal of time in passages where Jesus Christ, this God says to us, and he emphasizes watching. His parables are filled with watching. Watch, therefore, is something that God says often and said often. And Christ commands his people to be watchers. And there is now so much to watch. Not a day goes by we don't have a pile of stuff. In Matthew 24, 3, his disciples asked him three questions. Let me read that very quickly. Uh, again, I've done this many times, obviously, and I know you folks have heard it a lot, but recognize that we have people who join us every week now, and I need to kind of give them an idea what we think here, so there's some repetition required. But 24-3, his disciples ask him three questions, and now some of them will say two questions and cross out two and put three in the heading. The headings are not inspired. There's three questions here at Matthew 24, 3. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? Question one. What will be the sign of your coming? Question two. And what will essentially be the sign of the end of the age? Question three. So there's three questions that are asked of God there by his disciples. Question number one, let me reword it a little bit. They're asking, what will happen to us? Because he told them just prior to that, temple will be torn down. What will happen to us? The apostles wanted to know, wished to know what to, to watch for concerning themselves so they could know how much time they had. And Christ answered the first question. I hope you remember that. Those three questions. Question one, question two, question three. He answers the first question second. And that's very difficult for people to understand. He does not go chronologically here when he answers this question. And question number two is, when will you come for the nation of Israel and rule as Messiah King and usher in the Messianic Kingdom? Uh, what will be the sign of your coming? That's question number two. And Christ answers the second question, third. Obviously, he answers the third question first. If you don't know that, it will be very difficult for you to work your way through that passage. The third question was, what are the signs of the end of the age of the Gentiles? And that's us. And he answers that first. And I bring Matthew 24, 3, the three questions of Matthew 24, 3. I bring it up again because we, you, us, we're in the midst of this. We're in the midst of the ending of the age of the Gentiles. It's incredible to read what they are saying in the Middle East. I, I just wrote down some uh, quotes this morning when I looked at it again. I know that you're aware, I hope you are, uh, Saudi Arabia and the Arab countries are forming a joint military. They're consolidating all of their militaries right now. Why are they doing that? They've all got together. We're having alliances made now in 30 minutes over there. They're getting on the phone saying, 
this is what we're going to do. You need to be with us. If you don't, we're all dead. There's a sense of urgency that's extraordinary. Uh, a CIA, former CIA, um, was a lieutenant general. I don't know if he was the director or the assistant director of the CIA. He says in the Middle East, he said this morning, there is a complete breakdown of order. Not a partial, not a, pro- a complete breakdown of order in the Middle East today. So we're going to see a joint military form of Arab forces against, the, now remember the Iranians are Persians, against the, the Iranians, the, Eurasia, the Iranian Shiites. So I'm going to have Sunni Shiites. And the Houthis are proxies in Yemen right now, and so you're going to see Iraq and Syria and Libya and Iran, Hezbollah, Hamas, against the Arab military consolidation. Rapid response is what they're trying to put together. The Prime Minister of Israel says this yesterday, the nuclear deal that the United States is proctoring with Iran is dangerous for all humanity. This is the kind of language, I was in a discussion yesterday, this is the kind of language that happened when Hitler rose up in 1930s. The world talked like we're talking today. Everyone thought back then, there was no Israel yet, but there was the 1917 agreements that started the formation of Israel. So people began to see the Israeli nation showing up. And then they saw Hitler rise up. Well, naturally we would expect that, wouldn't we? A man whose one of his singular purposes was to extinguish, annihilate, destroy every Jew he could, he could kill. Iran right now is in the role of Germany in the sense that they're maneuvering to take over the entire Middle East. That's Danielian prophecy right there. Ezekiel, Daniel. A rabbi, and actually Dana, as we ended last week during the post-game buffet, Dana came up and said, you know, I'm looking at Haman, Mordecai. There's a, a rabbi who did that today. He compared uh, our president, President Obama, to Haman, the arch enemy of Israel. Now, that might be hyperbola, but the very fact that that kind of language is happening, never in the history of this country. I cannot believe for an instant has anyone of any stature compared to the President of the United States to the arch enemy of Israel. So the battle for the Middle East is happening. Iran is, is very openly announcing that they control four capital cities. They control Beirut, they control uh, Damascus, they control, of course, Tehran, and they control Baghdad. So they consider themselves the what of the Middle East? They are the kings of the Middle East now. So we have this uh, amazing race to chaos going on. And we, we need to watch this stuff. I know that your life is busy. I got that. Uh, but that today, now is the time to watch. 
Do not go about your lives loving the simple things. Not one day passes without something extraordinary occurring. And I hope you know that uh, Saudi Arabia has massed its troops and it's preparing to drive the Iranians, the Iranian-backed Yemeni rebel forces from Yemen. And why are they doing that? Get a map. They're doing it because if Iran succeeds, and right now the Yemeni rebel forces, again, they're proxies for Iran. If, if Iran succeeds in controlling Yemen, what do they get? They get the port of Aden, right? They're able to dominate the Gulf of Aden where it, contra- where it contacts the Red Sea. The Saudi military will not allow that. They can't allow that. Iran cannot seize that area. And so there will be war. And they're massing at the border right now. They're, I think they're 150,000 strong getting ready to pour into Yemen. And they're on the phone trying to get as many Arab-backed forces they can find. They don't want it to be close. They know that Iran will counter-offensive, right? Iran now has a naval force. They're busy blowing up uh, mock-ups of, uh, of American uh, aircraft carriers. How interesting it is that the United States right now is attempting to manufacture an agreement with Iran that results in a fiendish ruler acquiring nuclear weapons. That's what this country is doing. And supposedly there's going to be a 10-year period before the fiend actually has the nuclear... Who believes there's going to be a 10-year period? No one would think that. You cannot possibly be that foolish. No one with any intelligence believes Iran will require 10 years. Thus, when now that that's happened, now that the United States has begun to broker this deal, and I think the deal is supposed to come out Tuesday. Tuesday. Just wait for Tuesday. Take Monday off. Call in sick. I'm kidding. Pay attention Tuesday. We have an inevitable, either it's intended or it's unintended consequence now has come. Because of this brokered agreement that the United States is attempting to come to, bring to fruition, there's a, an inevitable consequence. I don't know if it's intended again or unintended. I don't know. I'm starting to lean towards the intended. I am not a geopolitical, I'm not interested, I should be, but I'm not somebody who has that kind of background. If I am able to see the consequence, then I imagine that anybody with any education in this field would certainly see it. You would hope they work for the government. But but that consequence is happening. It's coming before our eyes. It's a today or tomorrow. And I said last Sunday that Iran will deploy a nuclear device immediately. There will be no hesitation. As soon as it seems to be functional, I think they'll, they'll take it. If they think it's 50% chance it'll fire, they're sending it. They're going to deploy it. They'll put it in a truck and drive it towards Israel. Or they'll put it in a boat and float it up the New York Harbor. Whatever they have to do. They're not going to wait. They're not going to test it. They're not going to, they're going to hope. They're going to, they're apocalyptic. They assume that this is what they're supposed to do. Kill as many people as they can. And again, as soon as they deem it functional, it's going against Israel. There there will be not two minutes of discussion. It will be put in a vehicle and sent. 
But their subsequent targets are going to include Saudi Arabia, Jordan, and Egypt. And it could all happen simultaneously. So what's the, what's the choice now? The choice for all of those countries are either a face extension, extinction, sorry, or submit to Iran's authority. All Tehran, just think of all they have to do. Let's assume they successfully uh, uh, ignite a nuclear weapon. All they have to do is get on the phone and say, we've got ten of those in your country. We want total control. We're coming in with our military. Or we'll destroy your country. You're sitting on one right now. They're in your harbors. They're in, uh, in your cities. We'll detonate it whenever we want. So either face extinction or submit to uh, Iran's authority. And Tehran would be the supreme leader of the entire Middle East, which is their goal. Uh, and that's assuming they could withstand Israel's counter-deployment of nuclear weapons on them. And they obviously are willing to accept the, the fatalities that that would have. It won't even slow them down. And Saudi Arabia is well aware of the doomsday sequence that's now in front of them. And they will not be found incognizant. They're not going to be reactive. They're going to be proactive. You can expect them to go. If I'm Saudi Arabia right now, am I going to wait till Tuesday? I doubt it. I certainly am not going to wait till Wednesday. The Saudis are going to attack while they're able to attack. It is the only hope they have. That is the consequence, the inevitable consequence of negotiating nuclear weaponry with somebody like this. And I must admit that I've been deliberating over the intentions of our president and our State Department, asking myself the most evident of the apparent questions. For example, is it the agenda of this administration to panic the entire Middle East? Is that what they're doing purposely? I want to know. They're enabling a ghoul to procure nuclear capabilities. They have to know that's going to bring chaos. It's certain that it'll bring chaos, and it is bringing chaos. Who else is involved in this? Who else has a border with Iran that happens to already be a nuclear power? Pakistan. Who's Pakistan talking to? Saudis. I mean, if I'm in Saudi Arabia's position, I need anybody that'll help me. Expect Saudi Arabia to ask for protection from Pakistan. The countries of the Middle East are maneuvering now for total war. All of that is biblically consistent with Ezekiel and Daniel. All of it. The third question, when, what is the sign of the end of the age of the Gentiles? This is it. So this maneuvering for total war had to be, somebody had to say that to the United States State Department. Who could possibly be surprised at all of this? What did our president and his staff think was going to happen when they began to negotiate nuclear weapons systems with the Iranians? 
by entering into negotiation with Iran and assenting to Iran continuing its nuclear weaponizations infrastructure, the only path to avoid annihilation is for the surrounding countries to attack. And they're going to attack. Just like any of us would. If your neighbor was coming over to you every day telling you he's going to kill your family and your children and your animals and your anybody he can kill, every day he comes over, he does it for 20 years, and then all of a sudden a man drives up in a truck and wants to negotiate how much ammunition he's going to give him and how much weaponry he's going to give him, what would you do? Would you wait for him to fire first? Do you think the Israelis are going to wait for them to detonate a nuclear weapon in Jerusalem, Tel Aviv? They're not going to wait. Nor are the Saudis, nor are the Jordanians, nor are the Egyptians. Their very survival depends on them attacking now. Kill now or be killed soon. That's your choice. What are you going to do? So I ask, was this always the intention of our President and our Secretary of State? A Middle East consumed by desperation, countries wildly flailing, alliances forming in minutes, Sunni versus Shiite to the death, Israel, Egypt, Jordan, Pakistan, Syria, Assyria, which also the Kurds, Turkey, Libya. What are they going to do? Hezbollah, Hamas. Whose idea was this, to burn the Middle East? If the Middle East ignites, what's going to happen here? You're going to stop all exportation of oil that comes from OPEC. How much is it going to cost for corn? We have the silliest idea. I know I I have listeners in Iowa. There's nothing more silly to me than to burn our food, especially when it'll destroy every engine that you put it in. I, I just don't get it, but that's what we're doing. Uh, is back to the our is this is this idea that is happening on Tuesday? Is this incompetence? Is it stupidity? Or is it willful? Is this the plan? In other words. What will be the sign of the end of the age of the Gentiles? The Middle East will be in total war. And out of that will rise somebody who's very, very powerful. That the world has never seen the likes of. And what should we do? What's our job? Watch. Our job is not to be Ignorant of it. Do not be one of those who are not watching. Okay, how's that for a warm, fuzzy, contemporary, seeker-sensitive sermon? Good to see all the visitors. (laughs) Somebody said to me a long time ago, does anyone ever feel good about coming to your church? It's after the buffet. Yeah, that's that's about when it happened. (laughs) <laughs> but if I didn't tell you this, I've got to stand up someday in front of a court, uh, in front of a judge. He's going to be there. And I want to be able to tell him, hey, I did my job. Maybe I didn't do it very well, but I did it the best I thought I could. And I didn't 
do fuzzy, wuzzy, cotton candy stuff that was valueless. I don't want to stand there and take that beating. I got my beating. You got yours. But I'm not going to have that one. I made that decision many, many, many years ago when I first read the job description. Okay, you may recall that James from Texas um, wanted to begin talking about the rapture, uh, is what he was wishing to do. He, he, he called that, or he called it the rapture. I'm going to call it something a little bit more, uh, I guess, descriptive. We know that we have the sign of the nation of Israel. And as Bill pointed out, Bill the cow, for those of you on the Internet, because they want to know which Bill is Bill, Bill the cow said that the... Uh, that there hasn't been a sign of Israel for thousands of years, almost 2,000 years, and now there is one, and that is an extraordinary sign to our generation. We have the sign of Israel. We have the sign of Assyria. We have the Middle East erupting in total, complete war. What is the sign of the end of the age of the Gentiles? Well, here we go. There's another sign that he wanted to discuss, James from Texas, and that is called the sign. He didn't put it in this form, but I will. Sign of the taking, oops, of the bride. So these two signs are going to be seen, not necessarily simultaneously, but they're in the, in the same general time period. The sign of Israel and the sign of the taking of the bride. Now, the bride could have been taken at any time. There's an imminency issue here. But now that we have both of them together, then I I just want you to see that clearly uh, that's not an accident. I've said many, many times over the years, the sign of Israel, that is for us. The sign of the taking of the bride, likely that would be for Israel. And that is how I'll propose it just to get you way ahead. But so we're now into the specifics of 1 Thessalonians 4:11 through 18 today. And and since uh, we have been and still are immersed in the 10 bridesmaids of Matthew 25:1 through 13 and the sign of the nation of Israel, it's appropriate to at least discuss the symmetry between these ta- these two signs, the sign of the taking of the bride and the sign of the nation of Israel. Again, Israel is called the what in scripture? It's called the wife of YHVH, right? And the bride is called the bride of Christ. Now, people say to me all the time, well, that makes God with two wives. He's a polygamist. No, he, he gives us the symbolism of Israel as if they are a wife. He gives the church the symbol as if they are a bride. So understand that symbolism. He's using a metaphor, if you will, so that we can understand how he is dealing with his nation of Israel and how he is dealing with his bride or his church. We can look at the Hebrew betrothal ceremony and figure out how the church is going to go through time. We can look at uh, the, uh, the divorce system, if you will, that he has with uh, Israel, and we can see how he's going to deal with the nation of Israel by looking at the uh, divorce language that's in the Old Testament. There's periods of time. There's betrothal. There's also a, a bill of divorcement. 
And so betrothal would apply to the church, a bill of divorcement would, and remarriage would uh, apply to the wife or Israel. Does that make sense? I hope it does. If it doesn't, see me afterwards. I can't spend a whole lot of time on that again. And that's why I try to ask the key questions of Matthew 25 as often as I can, 25, 1 through 13. That's why uh, Matthew 25 has been on the table for the last few weeks, the, the ten bridesmaids specifically. Because in that, in that uh, parable, the key question is, where's the bride? I have bridesmaids. I have to have a bride. Bride's not mentioned. Why isn't the bridesmaid mentioned in Matthew 25, 1 through 13 in that parable? Why, I'm sorry, why, aren't the, why isn't the bride mentioned? Where is she? How'd she get there? Or who took her? Where'd she go? When did she leave? How long has she been gone? If you conclude that the bridegroom has her, why did he take her? The church is being treated as if she is a bride. The symbol of the church is the bride. I have a parable that she's not in. I need to explain that. Who was watching when she was taken, if you conclude she's taken? Who was watching? Who knew she was gone? What is the evidence that they knew in that parable? Some knew, some didn't. What's the evidence that some knew? I'll give you a little hint. As an aside, uh, we can accumulate the statements of the five uh, foolish bridesmaids and the statements of the wicked and lazy servant who hid the one talent of gold and the evil slave who ate and drank with the drunkards and beat the, his fellow slaves. We can take everything they say and put it together. We'll do that in the coming weeks because uh, it's necessary to solve Thessalonians with the bridesmaids, which is what I intend to do for those of you who think I never plan anything. But it's helpful to put all of those together um, and connect them together, if you will, in order to understand the mind of the Antichrist. And I would expect the Antichrist to show up any time I'm talking about the sign of the taking of the bride. So if I have, a, I have a parable that talks about the bride missing and the bridesmaids, then I would expect what to happen. Somewhere would be the Antichrist. And as we have discussed before, in those three parables of Matthew, uh, of Matthew 24 and 25, there's three parables in a row there, 25, 45, or 24, 45, all the way to 25, 30. There's three parables. All three of those have an Antichrist component to them. And if I have an Antichrist component, what else do I have there? If I am trying to understand the mind of the Antichrist, who else do I automatically understand the mind of? Satan. They combine themselves at some point. If I have the Antichrist and the Satan and Satan combined, which I do, I'm extraordinarily powerful. What would that make that person? I would submit that this statement would would uh, it would apply to him. Don't you agree? Can you read that? Remember, I asked you last week. 
What's the phrase, twice a son of hell, mean? You travel the world and you make somebody twice a son of hell. Well, first thing I want to do is figure out what qualifies as twice of a son of hell. Well, this would certainly apply to the Antichrist. Now, that's not necessarily what's, what it means there, but that's a good place to start. Okay, so let's... We've already read 1 Corinthians 15.35. We, we didn't get to verse 58, stopped at verse 42 there or abouts. But let's now take on Thessalonians uh, 4, uh, 11 through 18, knowing that eventually we're headed into Corinthians. We're going to head into Corinthians today, uh, not Corinthians 15. We're going to head into Corinthians, uh, uh, 2 Corinthians 10. So uh, we'll get that. Uh, no, hang on, 5. 2 Corinthians 5, sorry, 1 through 10. So let's read this uh, Thessalonians first and start to put pieces together. How am I doing? Okay. We'll start uh, with the, but we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you that you may walk properly towards those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. That's a contextual introductory verse to this. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. What's the first question? Whenever you read, I don't want you to be ignorant, what should we assume about ourselves? Uh Uh-oh, this is for me. I might be this guy. Uh, Chances are, he's. this is... I always read it this way. I do not want you to be ignorant, Steve, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, let me repeat that. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air as opposed to on the ground, and thus we will always, shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Before we begin tackling that, I should repeat this. What we're going to do in the next coming weeks, probably do it next week, uh, since it'll be first fruits, and that's a resurrection day, and this has a resurrection um, element to it. I should make sure you understand that what we're going to do will include 1 Corinthians 15:35 through 58, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 10, Matthew 17, Mark 9, 2 through 8, 2 Peter 2, 9, Revelation 6, 9 through 11, and Romans 11, for those of you who keep score. There's others too, but mainly those. Feel free to read ahead. Obviously, we're going to have quite the task, and we'll, be, we'll confront many different views on the subject. There are as many views as there are commentators. This is a this is a bloodbath theologically in here. Once again, the subject is the sign of the taking of the bride. So we start by asking, what is the purpose of the taking of the bride? I 
told you that I think that the purpose is for the nation of Israel. Who is the nation of Israel? Never had one before. Now we got one. I think it's them. I think the people who are in the nation of Israel, those are the nation of Israel. That seems pretty logical, doesn't it? Not everybody thinks so. In fact, most think the nation of Israel is not the nation of Israel. They think they're the nation of Israel. There's all kinds of denominations, cults, that think they're the nation of Israel. Who, who remembers Herbert W. Armstrong and Gardner Ted Armstrong? Yeah, he thought he was the nation of Israel. He was really sure of it. And then what happened? Nation of Israel. Jehovah's Witnesses, they think they're nation of Israel. They worked out fine until what? Nation of Israel. Lots of people think they're nation of Israel. Well, I'm going to propose one more time or submit that the nation of Israel is the nation of Israel. That's an extraordinary leap of theological soundness, I know. We'll try it. Okay. <laughs> Let's start to make a list because that's so much fun. Everybody loves it. Okay, nobody likes it, but list makers going to list. That's what we're going to do. How does God define these terms? Let me put them on. Just in case you think, okay, I got all of this. He says in there, didn't he? Fallen asleep. What does he mean, fallen asleep? Is it like here on Sunday? No, it's not. That's not it. Those who sleep in Jesus, he says. What's that mean? Oops. Spelling is starting to get more difficult. And by the way, I'm not having trouble spelling difficult words. I'm having trouble spelling simple words. I looked at the word through. He threw the ball. I looked at it ten times today and decided it was wrong. I'm wrong. So I look up through. I could not. I just stared at it. You know how you get after your 11th or 12th Diet Coke? Okay, maybe you don't. Maybe you don't know. But I'm looking at T-H-R-E-W, and I'm positive it's wrong. It looks weird to me. So I looked it up. How's that for scary? Yeah. Watch me carefully. You know my family history. I could go at any minute. Anyway, we who are alive and remain. Here, I, I got people who sleep in, I've fallen asleep and sleep in Jesus. Is there any other kind of sleep besides sleep in Jesus? I'm good at this part, the sleep in part. Never mind. Here we go. Those who are asleep. Dead in Christ. See, 
this one should immediately, dead in Christ, should make you go, mm, that's an interesting phrase. Because what is Christ? He's resurrection and he's life. So dead in resurrection and life. Dead in life? That, what does dead in Christ mean? What does fallen asleep mean in the context of all of that? And then the obvious questions come now. Those were, the, those were a little bit more difficult. Christ himself descends with a shout. Okay? What do you want to ask right now? He descends with a shout. Who does the shouting? What does he shout? What does he say? What is said by the archangel? Let me read it again. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, comma, with the voice of an archangel. Do you think the voice of the archangel is the same as the shout, or are they different? In other words, do I have three distinct things? Do I have a shout? Do I have the voice of the archangel? And do I have a trumpet player? Well, of course I have a trumpet player. Whenever God wants to do something really cool, he gets a trumpet player. Who's playing the trumpet? What does the archangel shout? What does Christ shout? I have three things to solve there. Notice that Paul does not want us to be stupid. That's, I've got to repeat that, but I do not want you to be stupid. Because if we are ignorant, then we will sorrow as others who have no hope. That's a solemn verse. We should contemplate. Clearly, there are those who have no hope. No hope. What a horrible way to go through life. They have no hope. How does one get to a place where they have no hope? Why don't they have any hope? In any event, those who have no hope, they have a particular way that they are sorrowful. They sorrow in a unique or a distinct way. If you are in the no hope category, you sorrow this way. And Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant of what, of the sign of the taking of the bride. Because if you are ignorant of that, you will sorrow just like the no hope people sorrow. I don't want you to do that. So how is it that the no hope sorrow, how, how do they sorrow? And if we are ignorant concerning those, the ones who have fallen asleep, we will sorrow in the way of those who have no hope. That would be a great shame. So, how are we supposed to sorrow? What's the difference, the contrast between the sorrow of people who are not ignorant of these things that we covered already just now in 1 Thessalonians 4? What's the contrast between the sorrow of, of believers who understand these things and the sorrow of the ones who have no hope? Obviously, correctly defining the terms contained in Thessalonians 4, 11 through 18 is of great importance, First Thessalonians. Okay, let's uh, get a little different here. A little more abstract for a second, philosophical. I, when I wrote this, I said, wow. I get really impressed with myself occasionally. This is one of those places, and so I'm warning you in advance. Let me read it to you word for word so you get the full impact of how I do at 10 o'clock at night sometimes. Consider that physical death is a physical event. I know, duh. Duh. 
And I wrote, any more profundities right here? (laughs) Physical death is a physical event. That's important, I thought, when I wrote it. I really still think it is. I know it seems simple, but it's often necessary to remind everyone of the basics when we're reading 1 Thessalonians 4. Is sleep... Is sleep, then, in the context of 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 through 18, is it referring to a physical event or is it referring to a spiritual condition? If you start with that question, I think starting with that question is an imperative. Let me rephrase the issue slightly. When the Bible speaks of death using sleep as a symbol, that's what it's doing. There are people who have fallen asleep. Those who sleep in Jesus. Those who are asleep. Dead in Christ. We who are alive and remain. When the Bible speaks of death using sleep as a symbol, is it referencing our physical body or our living soul? I submit that it is the physical body that it is referring to. So sleep is a physical event, if I'm correct. And of course, of course, yep. Add to that, sleep as a death symbol is never accredited to those who have no hope. Sleep as as a death symbol is never given to someone who doesn't believe. It is never said of an unbeliever that they sleep. Never. Only those who believe that Christ is the one who is life, who is the resurrection, are said to sleep. When sleep is used as a symbol of physical death. And naturally, only God himself, the creator of life himself, can restore, can resurrect life. That has always been logically apparent, though so many fail to connect the obvious. They don't understand that when Christ says, I am the life, I am the resurrection, he is saying that he is the creator of all things. Anyway, we're venturing into familiar territory as we concern ourselves with the body resurrection, because that's what we're doing Whenever I talk about the sign of the taking of the body, I'm sorry, sign of the taking of the bride, I am now in the, in the subject of body resurrection. Because the taking of the bride requires body resurrection. And that's a lot of questions. And it's familiar territory with this crowd, I know. And then when I say the name of Wilder Penfeld, he, I hope you remember him. He's the extraordinary neurophysicist and neuroscientist. He's amazing. I have his books. And he concluded that that near the end of his life that the material physical brain cannot account for the functions of the immaterial mind. In other words, you cannot come up with a physical, the physical brain cannot cannot give you any understanding of the non-physical mind. And he saw, therefore, that man consisted of two fundamentally separate elements. You know all of this. Physical actions and mind actions. That's why I'm asking you. Is sleeping a mind action or is it a physical action? In this case, it is a physical action. It is not a mind action. Dr. Penfeld was 
especially concerned with the energy source for what he concluded called the mind action. In other words, he determined that the mind uh, survived physical death, but he needed an energy source for it to do that. What is the energy source for your mind right now? That's right, Kentucky Pride Chicken. Caffeine and aspartame. I'm only slightly kidding. This body is an energy source. It will take in material, convert it to energy, right? The mind needs energy. If you do not rest the body, what can it do to the mind? What can the mind do to a body it won't allow to rest? We've talked about this many, many times. We have to have rest. You will die without rest. Penfeld knew that there, that there was a body-mind cooperative and, and there was a mechanism that provides energy to the mind from the body. The body, when alive, when functioning properly, utilize, properly utilizes energy and, and Penfeld believed that that energy utilization somehow was transferred into the mind because the mind would also need an energy source, would need energy. So his question was, what then is the energy source for the mind when the body is asleep in Christ? Those who are asleep, those who have fallen asleep, where is the energy source for the mind? Now, for the consciousness. Who provides the energy for the consciousness of the mind is how I always say it. That makes it obvious, doesn't it? Who provides the energy for the body? Let's just be clear. Do you think it's you? You utilize physical reality and you provide energy for yourself in some way that comes from the one who provides all energy, right? All energy comes from the one who is energy. If God's perspective for those who have hope is that death is merely a temporary physical state, because that's what he is saying here. Sleep is a what? Temporary physical state. He's using it as a symbol for physical death. He is saying to those who believe, sleep and death have a relationship symbolically, allegorically, metaphorically. Pick your uh, adjective. Those who sleep in Jesus are those who die in Jesus. Those who are dead in Christ, their death is the same as a temporary suspension of physical activity. Rest. But it is only the physical body that sleeps, not the consciousness, not the mind. That's what Paul wanted you not to be ignorant of. I don't want you to be ignorant. You've got to know that death to you who believe is just like a nap. It is the body that is resting in the sense the body is disabled. Not the mind. Yes, sir. What's that? You can make a strong case that Adam does, in fact, go through some process quite similar to this, uh, quite similar to death. The metaphor of Adam being put into a deep sleep and out of his side comes the bride, which is uh, eventually taken from him and is taken by him. Absolutely. We're going to end up in that position. Jonah the same way, resurrected. After he dies, he did not survive the drowning, much less the swallowing. He was not in the belly of a fish with a coffee table and a book and a light nightstand or whatever. That's just, please stop.
sign of Jonah is a resurrection sign. So, God is saying that the condition of the mind is, is not the same as the condition of the body at death. The mind continues to operate. It has no suspension of activity. God is the, provides the energy now that it needs in order to continue functioning. So there must be some kind of transfer switch, if you will. When you, when our living souls come out of the, uh, out of the body at death, in order to activate the mind, it, it, God must energize it. The body is full of examples. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm getting, I got my phone went off there. I thought it was for me. The Bible is full of examples of continued consciousness after the death of the body. It's full of them. If the, the, it is a fundamental truth of Scripture. The Scripture is adamant. It shouts to us that we have continuity. That physical death does not affect our continuity. Our minds do not cease at the death of our bodies. That's what Paul... I don't want you to be ignorant, lest you sorrow as, as those who have no hope. Got to understand this. And he goes on to explain it using this sleep metaphor. Now, therefore, the term resurrection then is applicable only to what? All of that to get you here. When I say you're going to be resurrected, what do I mean? That's a very bad way of saying it, isn't it? I should say your body is going to be resurrected because you are not your body. You have continuity. Death is a physical event. The body goes into a temporary suspension. Never, never is it said. One will never read of a living soul being resurrected from physical death. The term resurrection then is applicable to the physical body. The very concept of resurrection in living soul. Some people say that your soul is resurrected. They call it soul sleep. They call it, uh, uh, what's it called, biblical holism. They have all kinds of different terms for it. But the very concept is contraposed. Your living soul, let me, let me put it on the The Living, get rid of this. I'll write it down so you can see. I hope, trying to push this in. Living soul resurrected. What? How can something that is living be resurrected? The definition of living is continuity. Continuity, there is no place for resurrection of the continuity of the soul. It's continual. There's no way I can put living and resurrected. The only thing that is resurrected is the physical body. So what then is the purpose of the body resurrection? Why does God resurrect our bodies? Because he does. It's important to him. God resurrected his own body. Now, his body's different than ours, absolutely perfect. So let's read the answer to that question. Why does he resurrect the body? All of this so that we can start a discussion on the sign of the taking of the bride, right? Here we are, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 11. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is dissolved, what's he talking about? He's using 
language that everyone can understand. If your tent dissolves, what's your tent? Can your soul dissolve? No. So what's the tent? Has to be the physical, right? The body, the machine. We have a building from God. What's he telling you? If your tent is a building, it dissolves, then what's God going to do? A building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, in this body we groan. Trust me, I groan. Bill, you're going to be 80. He's groaning. I'm right behind him. We groan in this, in this, in this body earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. When are you naked? You are naked when your body has dissolved. When you are disembodied. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed. What is the difference between clothed and further clothed? Unclothed and further clothed, right? That mortality may be swallowed up by immortality. Also says life. There's no better definition than immortality than life. How he defines life is that it is immortality. Now, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee so we are always confident. Are we always confident? Let's go to funerals. See how confident we are. Knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we will walk by faith, not by sight. Really? I hope so. How's it working? We are confident, yes, well pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. When the body has died, I am present with the Lord. When the body is with me, I am absent from the Lord. Why? Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, so either, either with your body or not with your body. You have two ways you can be. You can be present or absent. That's your choice. What did Paul always say? I don't want to be present anymore. I want to be absent. We have people that are in the absent category and we have people that are in the present category. Who, who's doing best? To be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one of us may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad, knowing therefore fear, knowing therefore the fear of the Lord. We persuade men, but we are well known to God. And I trust we are well known in your consciousness. More words to define. We started at tent, dissolved, clothed, home in the body, absent from Christ, absent from the body, present with the Lord, present or absent, judgment seat of Christ, receive things, good or bad, fear of the Lord, sound mind. Do not assume that that passage is easy. But it will explain the sign of the taking of the bride. Why he's doing what he's doing and how he does it. What his point is. 
We all know, just as we read earlier in Thessalonians, the dead in Christ rise first. Where are they that are, that have, that are present with the Lord? They're present with the Lord. So what rises first? The body rises first. Their bodies rise first, then what? Those of us who are present with the body, absent, those of us go next. What happens to us? It happens fast. What does he do? This body makes us groan. Something got to got to add what to it? I have to take off the mortality and add the immortality of the body. The living soul is a living soul. Understanding that will now help you place all of this all of the sign of the taking of the bride in the right place for the right reasons at a reasonable period of time.